You're free to use any technique that you find works for you. Or if you like, you can follow the instructions. Start first with thoughts of goodwill. Goodwill for yourself, goodwill for people around you. Goodwill is a wish for true happiness. And the good thing about true happiness is that it's not the sort of thing where you gain and someone else has to lose. True happiness comes from within. It doesn't require that you take anything away from anyone. And therefore, the wish for true happiness for yourself is not a selfish act. So just tell yourself, may I find true happiness. And then let that same thought spread to other people. Start with people who are close to your heart, family, your very close friends. May they find true happiness too. And then spread the same thought out in ever-widening circles. People you know well and like. People you don't know so well. People you're neutral about. And people you don't like. Remind yourself that the world would be a much better place if everyone could find true happiness within. There'd be a lot less of the evil and selfish things that go on. So don't let your likes and dislikes get in the way of your wishing true happiness for others. And spread thoughts of goodwill to people you don't even know. And not just people, living beings of all kinds, east, west, north, south, above and below, out to infinity. May we all find true happiness in our lives. focus back in the present, <clears throat> right here, right now. What are those inner resources that you've got to build on? You've got the body sitting here breathing. And you've got the mind thinking and aware. So bring all those things together. Think about the breath. And then be aware of it as it comes in and as it goes out. If you have trouble staying with the breath, you can think a meditation word along with it. The traditional one is bhutto, which means awake. You can think bhut with the in-breath, to with the out. Or you can simply be sensitive to how the process of breathing feels in the body. 
and allow yourself to breathe in whatever way feels comfortable. It might be long breathing or shorter breathing, deeper or more shallow, heavier, lighter, fast, slow. You can experiment with different rhythms and textures of breathing to see what feels best for the body right now. If you're feeling tired, you may want to breathe in a way that feels more energizing. If you're feeling tense, you can breathe in a way that's more relaxed. Find a rhythm that feels just right and stick with it for a while. And if it gets so that it doesn't feel good anymore, well, you can change. Because the body's need for breath is constantly changing, so you have to monitor it. This helps develop a, a real sensitivity to the present moment so the breathing doesn't become mechanical. off from the breath, you just bring it right back. Take it in stride. Wanders off again, bring it back again. Again, take it in stride. Don't get upset. Don't get frustrated. Just keep coming back. The breath will always be there for you. Each time you come back, see if you can make the breath a little more comfortable so it becomes more absorbing, more interesting. Try to think of the breathing as a whole body process. And one way to explore that is to Look at different parts of the body one by one as you breathe. A good place to start is down around the navel. Just focus on that part of the body. Located in your awareness right now. And then watch it for a while as you breathe in, breathe out. And if you notice any sense of tension or tightness there, either tension building up with the in-breath or tension that you hold on to with the out-breath. Just let it relax. Think of it dissolving away in the breathing process. So you breathe in with no tension breathing up, building up, and you breathe out, letting go of whatever tension you sense.
move your attention up to the solar plexus and follow the same three steps there. In other words, one, locate that part of the body in, the aware- in your awareness. You don't have to be too specific. And then secondly, watch it as you breathe in, as you breathe out. And if you notice, third, notice if you notice any sense of tension or tightness or blockage there, just allow it to dissolve away. up to the middle of the chest and follow the same steps there. attention up to the base of the throat and follow the same steps there. to the middle of the head.
try to be very gentle here because this is probably the most overworked part of the body. When you breathe in, think of the breath energy. It's not just the air, it's the breath energy coming in not only through the nose, but also the ears, the eyes, in from the back of the head, down from the top of the head. Very gently working through any tension you may feel in any of those spots. Around those spots. Allowing it to dissolve and lift away. If you're meditating on your own, you could continue the survey of the body, down the back, out the legs to the tips of the toes. The beginning again at the back of the neck and going down the shoulders, out the arms to the tips of the fingers. for the time being, return your attention to any of the spots we focused on just now, whichever one was seemed most congenial and most comfortable. Allow your awareness to settle right there. And then think of it spreading out from that spot to fill the whole body, so that you're aware of the whole body as you breathe in, the whole body as you breathe out. has a tendency to shrink, so keep thinking, whole body as you breathe in, whole body as you breathe out. And then just try to maintain that sense of centered but broad awareness. Sounds or distractions come in, think of them coming into the field of that awareness but not disturbing it.
before you leave meditation, remember there is a skill to leaving. Don't just jump out. My teacher once said that people, as they meditate, tend to be like someone who's climbing a ladder to the second story of a house. Climb rung by rung by rung, finally get to the second story. And then when the time comes to leave, you jump out the window. So, don't jump. Stay right where you are. All you have to do is open your eyes, but the breath is still there. Still coming in, still going out. And try to be as aware of this part of your awareness as much as possible. In fact, I'd say give most of your attention to this part of your body and very little attention to the talk. Try to stay centered inside. If there's anything that's really relevant, it'll come in. You don't have to go sending your awareness outside. try to stay in the body as much as possible. Down to the fingers, down to the toes. Getting thoughts of goodwill once more. For the people all around you. Then open your eyes. I suppose I should say a few words about being from Long Island. <laughs> but I shouldn't tell you what my older brother used to call people from the city. <laughs> but it feels good to be back here. It is, even though I was born out on a farm, being back in New York City does feel a little bit like home. It's the same part of the world, the same light. Tonight's talk and this weekend's retreat deal with karma, and particularly with the issue of how the teachings on karma relate to meditation. Karma is one probably one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated teachings in the in the Buddhist Dharma. People often regard it as part of the unnecessary baggage that Buddhism brought along when it came over. Part of the problem here is that the baggage got mixed up. The, teach, the Buddhist teachings on karma came over at the same time as Hindu and other teachings on karma. And most everybody assumed that they were the same things. But that's like saying that Plato taught about ethics and Aristotle taught about ethics and the Stoics taught about ethics and since they use the same word, it must be the same teaching. But it's not. It's something very different. 
So the first issue is that we don't really understand the content of the teaching. Because we don't, we also don't see how it is in any way inherently related to any other part of the teaching. Particularly when we think that the Buddha taught a very deterministic teaching on karma. It doesn't seem to relate to meditation. It doesn't seem to be inherently related to anything else. Or even if it is inherently related to other parts of the teaching, it doesn't seem relevant to our lives. And part of the reason it doesn't seem relevant is we don't want it to be relevant. The teaching on karma, if it's treated in a deterministic way, sounds like something you would not want to believe. Secondly, it sounds like um, it's inconsistent with the rest of the teachings. And finally, it sounds unhealthy. Just psychologically, believing in determinism would be an unhealthy thing to believe. And we're right. So the issue is not so much that the Buddha had this psychologically unhealthy teaching, but it's that we've misunderstood what the teaching is. Um, So to begin with, I'd like to clear up a little bit of misunderstanding about the teaching. But to get there first, it's good to get on to the issue of why the Buddha has a teaching on karma to begin with. And secondly, before we get involved in the metaphysical issues around the teaching on karma, it's good to think about, okay, how does the Buddha treat this psychologically? How, does he, how is the teaching meant to be related to in, an emotion, in terms of our emotional response? Okay. The Buddha's central teaching is that it is possible through human effort to put an end to suffering. Now, because human effort carries the whole burden of the teaching, the Buddha has to have a very clear, clearly delineated um, teaching on what human effort is. What is human action? Why does it resonate so much? <laughs> um, what is human action? And how does causality work in terms of human action? When you do something, why does that action have an effect? And to what extent does it have an effect? Um, how does action cause suffering? And then how does action put an end to suffering? How is this possible? Now, the Buddha's got to explain these issues because he's putting so much of an burden on the, on the idea of human effort, human effort, human action. And we'll find as we get into it that there are some very technical and metaphysical issues surrounding the Buddha's teaching here. Um, and this is the one metaphysical issue that the Buddha gets involved in. You've probably seen the list of things that he doesn't, questions he doesn't answer. Is the universe eternal? Is it not eternal? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Is the soul the same thing as the body or is the body something different from the soul? When a person gains awakening, do they exist? Do they not exist? Do they both? Do they neither? Those are questions that the Buddha just put aside. Um, Questions, is there a self? Is there no self? He would not answer. In other words, those were totally irrelevant, he said, to the issue of suffering. But for the purpose of explaining how human action can put an end to suffering, he's got to explain. What is action? How does it have results? How does it relate to the issues of suffering? But before I go into those metaphysical issues, as I said, it's good to look at the psychological issues around action. And particularly think about what you would like to teach a child about action to make the child healthy. Make the child someone who relates well to other people <coughs> and does not get psychologically tied up in knots about mistakes. <coughs> the first thing you would like the child to think about is to think before you act. When you do something, what are the results going to be? To not be thoughtless and to realize 
on the one hand, that you do have a power through your actions, that you can exert a change on the surroundings around you. But you also have to be thoughtful about what is that change going to be. You can't just act on whatever comes into your mind and hope that everything is going to be okay. So that's the first thing you want to have the child to think about. What are, the react, what are the results of your actions? Secondly, you'd want the child to see that if you're doing something that's harmful or hurtful, either to yourself or to other people, stop. You know, stop hitting your brother. Stop breaking our, you know, our furniture. Um, if you find that you've done something hurtful or harmful, make the resolve not to repeat it. Don't do it again. Basic instructions to kids. You know, don't hit your sister again. And then finally, if you make a mistake, learn how to admit your mistake to yourself and to other people. Once you've admitted your mistake, okay, learn from the mistake so you don't repeat it. Be willing to talk it over with other people who might know other ways of acting, other alternatives. You don't like what your sister is doing. Okay, what can you get her to do to stop without hitting her or beating her? You know, basic, you know, basic instructions that you would like little kids to know and you'd like most adults to know. You invade a country, think before you invade. You know? <laughs> a certain politician whom I will not name is proud of the fact that he doesn't think about his past mistakes. <laughs> basic psychopath. So what you're teaching the kid, on the one hand, is to have compassion. You know, don't act in a way that's going to be hurtful or harmful. Secondly, okay, when you've re recognized a mistake, learn not to be debilitated by remorse or guilt. You get tied up in remorse or guilt, it's likely that you're going to repeat the mistake. Because you just get so wound up in feeding off of your bad feelings that you don't have the energy to think straight, to think about what would be an alternative way of acting. At the same time, you don't want the kid to be callous. How do you walk that middle line between you know, guilt and remorse on the one hand and callousness on the other side, saying that it doesn't matter? How do you realize, okay, it does matter. How are we going to get about to learn from the mistake? I mean, these are basic lessons you want all kids to learn. So you're teaching them you know, integrity. You're teaching them compassion. And at the same time, you're teaching them not to be so invested in their actions that they're not being, they won't be willing to admit mistakes. These are all things that you want your child to know about action, the attitude you want them to take about action. Okay, so once you've got that, when you want to develop that attitude, okay, what are the metaphysical implications? Have you ever thought about that? That in trying to develop a, a healthy psychology, what does this mean about how you're going to view the world? Okay, the first thing it means is that okay, you do have free will to choose what you will do. The world is not deterministic. You can't say, you know, I did this because God made me do it. Or the stars made me do it. Or just the laws of physical motion. You made me hit my sister. You've got to believe, okay, that you do have free will. You can make choices. Secondly, you are responsible for your acts. You can't blame someone else outside. Also, you have to believe that your actions do have results. It's not like that there's no, actually no causality built into the world. When you do something, it's going to have an impact. So there is a kind of causality. There are connections between events. You have to believe that. 
and that those results can be harmful or beneficial. In other words, you are an agent in shaping your happiness and your pain. You can't go out and just blame other people. You've got to take responsibility for this. Also, you have to believe that the results of actions do follow a pattern. Because if they didn't follow a pattern, you could never learn from your mistakes. You hit somebody today and it's harmful. You go and hit them again tomorrow and it's not harmful. There's no pattern. They've done experiments with pigeons. They put them into a little cage and they have two bars. You press one bar and you get food and you press the other bar and you get an electric shock. Now, if the bars always have the same pattern, the pigeons are healthy, they're happy. they, They get the food, they don't get the shock. If you keep changing the bars back and forth in a random way, you get very neurotic pigeons. They just really freak out. Because what they've learned serves no purpose. So you've got to believe that there is enough pattern in your in the way things are that okay, when you, you know, do something harmful, it will always be harmful. Enough of a pattern for that. So the world is not totally chaotic. So on the one hand, it's not deterministic. On the other hand, it's not totally chaotic. Finally, you have to believe that your knowledge is worthwhile. It does make a difference in your actions. That you learn a lesson, and it's worth, worth going through the effort to learn a lesson. And that your actions do make a difference, therefore, in your experience of pleasure and pain. Now, for a psychologically healthy person, these are the metaphysical implications of being psychologically healthy. The things that you would want to believe in order to help underpin the type of actions that you would want to follow, that you'd like to see other people following. And it so turns out that the Buddha's teachings on causality fill the bill. Now, the reason he asked you to take his teachings on karma as a set of beliefs, something you take on faith, this is another reason why some people tend to be a little unfriendly to the teaching on karma because they, you know, they came to Buddhism to get away from belief and get away from faith and here you are putting up another belief and faith issue. Can you ever really know whether the world is deterministic or not? Can you ever really know if it's chaotic? I mean, there's no scientific experiment that can prove those things. So it's something you've just got to take on as a working hypothesis. Let's put out the word faith, put out the word belief, say working hypothesis, okay? i.e. scientific faith. (laughs) (laughs) So, the Buddha's teachings on karma, as I say, fill the bill. Because what are his teachings on karma? It goes back to his basic teaching on causality. When the Buddha described his awakening, most of us would like to read, you know, pages and pages of beautiful visions of the universe and universal love and Buddha nature and all these other things. But the Buddha doesn't talk about those things. He talks about, when he boils it down to its most elemental part, is a principle of causality. It sounds kind of dry, but it relates directly to our lives. In other words, there are two principles of causality working in life. One is that certain things are related over time. You know, when X happens, then Y will happen either pretty soon or it could happen any time later. When X stops, that leads to Y's stopping, again, at some point later on. So there's what we call linear causality through time. The other principle is that when you have X, you will have Y at the same time. 
Two things arise and pass away together. When X stops, Y will stop. So you've got two principles acting together. One is causality over time, and the other is which is what you call synchronicity. Things arise together, pass away together. And he said both principles work. Now what this means in terms of your intentions in the present moment is that your present moment is composed of three things. Results from past actions or from past intentions. These are the principles acting over time. And then there's also your present intentions, what you will right now, what you choose right now, and the results of those intentions. Some of the results come immediately. Other results will happen over time. And so what you've got in the present moment is not totally determined by the past. You have the free will to make choices in the present moment. Now, there are some limitations on the range of choices that are open to you at any, any, any particular moment based on past actions, the results of past actions. But you would not experience the present moment unless you had some present intentional input. I mean, that's the most radical teaching the Buddha has. It's that you're not just a passive observer of a TV show that's coming at you. It's more like one of those interactive games on the computer. <laughs> you actually make some choices that will influence whether Pac-Man goes right or Pac-Man goes left. And it shows you the last time I looked at a computer. You know? <laughs> I understand it's gotten a lot more sophisticated since Pac-Man days. Okay. But at any rate, it's interactive. Which means that the choices you're making in the present moment are really important. And one of the tragedies of human life is that we have this element of free choice and free will in the present moment. We don't, don't take full advantage of it. We have the opportunity to do very skillful things to avoid suffering. And <clears throat> I was told not to say this, but if you stay for the weekend, we'll get into detail on this. <laughs> <laughs> but it really does make a difference in how you approach sort of the raw material that you've gotten from the past. You may have been dealt a poor card, poor hand of cards, but it's up to you to play them. And you can play them very well. Or like being a cook. You go into the kitchen and there may not be that many good ingredients, but if you're a good cook, you can make you know, something good out of anything. I have a student, a monk, who used to be a cook in, in Singapore. He told me one night they had this sort of set price dinner. They had cream of asparagus soup, and they underestimated the number of people who were going to come, and they come in, there's not enough cream of asparagus soup. So what does he do? He asks all the other cooks to leave the kitchen, goes into the trash, gets out all the asparagus pairings, and whips them up into a really good cream of asparagus soup. So, no matter what you... <laughs> so always avoid the, always avoid the you know, fixed-price meal. <laughs> But what it means is, okay, there are certain limitations on what you're going to be able to do in the present moment, but you don't focus on the limitations. You focus on the possibilities. You focus on the quality of your intention right now. And one of the reasons you want to meditate is so you get very, very clear about what those intentions are. Okay. So what this means is, okay, it focuses on the importance of intention, and focuses on all the other mental qualities that come around intention. The Buddha gives a list. There's attention, the things that you focus on, the questions you ask, the way you frame the situation in your mind. So this is, that's what the Buddha means by the word attention. Secondly, there's the feelings that you get. 
And feeling here means not only physical feelings, but also sort of in, in, in feelings in the mind. Feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neither. Perception is the things, the labels you put on things based on the questions you ask and the way you frame things. And then finally, there's what he calls contact, which is not just contact at the senses, but also contact between events in the mind. You know, a perception comes up, and how do you react to it? And the Buddha says you can look at them and you can decide which perceptions are skillful, which ones are not. You can change the way you perceive your reality, and that will have a big impact on how you actually experience your reality. Because after all, you are, cha- cha- you are shaping your present reality through your intentions, which are affected by these qualities of attention, feeling, perception, contact in the mind. So you can begin to see why the teaching on karma is an important part of meditation, because it focuses you where you're going to focus your attention. Just giving that as a little preview. <clears throat> now it turns out that if you have a, a causal system where you have linear causality interacting with synchronicity, what you've got is a chaotic situation, but not chaos in the sense of total chaos. It's like chaos theory, which is not total chaos. I mean, there are patterns within chaos. And there's also free will within this kind of what they call deterministic chaos. Um, So you've got nonlinear causality going on here. And there's some interesting lessons you can learn from nonlinear causality that that you can apply to the Buddhist teachings. One is that you get complex patterns from simple procedures or simple formula, simple patterns. If you've ever seen the Mandelbrot set, you know, those really wild things that they were putting out about 10 years ago, those wild patterns. It comes from a very simple equation. And you just iterate the equation over and over again. And then it, depending on where you are on the graph, you can get lots of different very complex patterns. Can you imagine trying to explain the whole Mandelbrot set to somebody? It's just way too complex. But there is a pattern to it. And this is in the parallel here, as the Buddha said, if you try to trace back everything that happens in the present moment to past karma, you go crazy. So he discourages that kind of thinking. Many of us are dislike the teaching on karma because it seems to focus attention on the past or on the future and away from the present, but that's precisely backwards. The Buddha might talk about past or future, but it's basically to bring your attention back to what you're doing right now. And as for tracing back you know, the Holocaust or Hurricane Katrina or the, Titan, the, the tsunami to past karma, he says, don't, you'll go crazy. So that's one, one parallel. The second parallel is something that's called scale invariance. It turns out that in nonlinear causality, the things that happen on one scale are precisely the things that happen on a larger scale or a smaller scale. You look at the Mandelbrot set, and you, go, you zoom in 200, you know, 1,000 times, you've got basically the same pattern, even in tiny little bits of the whole, the whole graph. <clears throat> and the Buddha said, this also applies to the teaching, to your experience of the present. If you can totally understand the present moment, what's going on in the present moment, you understand everything. The way the whole universe acts, it's right there in the present moment. It's the same pattern, it's the same procedure. Also, what things that you see on the large scale also apply on the immediate present scale. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha does at times talk about larger time scales to give you kind of a background, something. 
look at things that you can then apply to the present moment. What it also means is that you don't have to look for agents in your life sort of behind the scenes. You don't have to ask, you know, is there a Buddha nature? Is there no Buddha nature? Is there a self behind this? Is there no self? Is there a God? Is there no God? He says, those, you don't have to go there. All you have to focus on is what you can immediately experience in the present moment. And that will answer all the questions you need to know about the issue of how suffering is caused and how suffering can be ended. Okay. Finally, there's something in non-linear causality that are called resonances. If you have a particular sort of system that's set up on non-linear uh, principles, what you usually have are several different equations that will interact in different ways. And it always happens, it starts with what they call the three-body problem. It, even in ordinary basic elementary physics, if you've got three bodies and you try to calculate how these three bodies are going to interact in terms of the gravity, you find that there are spots where the bodies will go out of the system because they enter what is called a resonance. And the reason they go out is that when you put all the equations together, you get an equation at some point where something is divided by zero. Lap, it's out. And this is why your computer breaks down every now and then. <laughs> really. <laughs> You've got a complex little system in that box. It's got all these equations interacting, so many that nobody can really forecast how they're totally going to interact. And especially if it's Microsoft, they don't seem to worry. <laughs> go ahead. But every now and then, something will d get divided by zero, and if it's a Mac, you get a little bomb. You know. And if it's Microsoft, they say, it's your fault. <laughs> Don't call us. <laughs> and in one way, they're right, because it's just built into complex, nonlinear systems that this is going to happen. How this is relevant to the practice is that if you had a totally linear system where you have conditions, one condition causes another condition causes another condition. If you tried to get to something unconditioned, you couldn't do it. You'd always be stuck in this conditioned cycle. But if you have a system, nonlinear, that has these resonances, you can act in certain ways that get you, get you into these resonance points. In other words, it is possible to use conditioned action to get yourself to something unconditioned. You don't have to go out and stare at the sky and blank out your mind. You can actually do things in the practice that will get you out of the system of suffering. I mean, you can see this acting in your mind. You get yourself into some sort of weird thought world that's really suffering. You can say, wait a minute, I don't have to think this. I can get out of here. And just that one thought will get you out of the thought world. Or you can say, if I'm doing this, who's suffering? I'm suffering. Why am I doing this to myself to get out? So you can use thought to get yourself out of thought. And the same principle, it turns out, works on larger and larger scales until you finally you can get yourself totally out of any kind of system of suffering using intentional actions. This is why the Buddha said that there is a type of karma that leads to the end of karma or a type of action that leads to the end of action because you've got this nonlinear system. This is why it works. So even though the, the teaching sounds fairly abstract, it has a lot of practical implications. In terms of, okay, you've got freedom of choice, but you've also got enough pattern in your life you can learn from things, learn from things. Because of the principle of scale and variance, it means you can focus just simply on the present moment 
and you can learn everything you need to know to put an end to suffering. And just focus on things you can directly experience and you can learn everything you need to know. You don't have to posit, you know, is there nobody behind this or is there somebody behind this? Just look at the actions. In fact, you look at everything in terms of actions and results and that will get you out. And finally, this principle of resonance is that there are ways to get out by using action. You don't... I mean, the, the Jains got themselves into this problem. They said, okay, all action leads to more action, therefore the only way to get out of the system is to stop acting. And they ended up having to starve themselves. Just lie down and starve. And even then the Buddha said they didn't get out. Because their, their, because their understanding of action was that it was physical as opposed to intentional. The intention. So those are some of the teachings on karma. In other words, it's based on this principle of these two causal principles interacting in the present moment. You experience things both as a result of past intentions, you also experience your present intention, you experience the results in terms of pleasure and pain caused by those present intentions. The whole thing put together. Which also, which is said, because it's this complex thing, by understanding your present intentions and by learning how to get more and more skillful, you can get yourself out of these feedback loops that cause suffering. You can get yourself out of this pattern of suffering that you're, that you're in. You're not stuck there through determinism. At the same time, you can learn enough through looking at your actions to know on your own how to get out. Okay, those are the implications of the teachings on karma in general. Some of the specific implications that relate to meditation is, one, there's the first issue of why meditate? Why don't we just go out and have a smoothie? <laughs> <laughs> You can, you can do both, yes. It's like that passage in the, I think it was Notes from the Underground, there, where Dostoevsky says the underground man feels like he's you know, stripped of his skin and standing out in the wind where there's a lot of sand in the wind. And there's that passage that builds on that. And I think it was, what was it, Remember the Wedding by Carson McCullers? Where Frankie, the young girl, says, I feel like I'm standing out in a sandy wind with my skin stripped off. I really need an ice cream cone. <laughs> okay, there are other ways of solving the problem. Okay, one, when you see that okay, you are responsible for your actions and whether you are going to suffer or not depends on the skillfulness of your intentions. Okay, that means you've got to learn how to be more mindful. You need more mindfulness. You need more alertness. You've got to, really got to straighten out your act. And this is what meditation does. It trains you to be more mindful, more alert, to have more concentration and more discernment, all the qualities of mind that we tend to associate with skills. So just on one level, just to straighten out your act, you need to develop these things. Okay, and you begin to see meditation as developing those skills that you're going to need to deal with the problem of your suffering. Secondly, when you start realizing that all beings, no matter where they are, are suffering under the same pattern, you begin to say, maybe I need to do more than just straighten out my act. Maybe I can just get out of this whole system entirely. This is another thing that comes from reflecting on actions. The teachings on karma also explain why, when you meditate, you focus on the present moment. Because all the things that are happening that you need to understand are happening right here, specifically in terms of intention and the feelings that result from intention 
and the views and perceptions and other things that lead you to have certain kinds of intentions. It's not enough just to say, I want to have good intentions. You have to figure out, okay, what intentions are going to be skillful? Which means you have to really learn more and more about the present moment and the connections among those things. Because it turns out that intention is right at the spot where those resonances are. You learn how to get more and more skillful in your intention that those spots that lead you to escape from suffering are right there. That's why I focus on the present moment. This also explains why meditation is something you do. Because of those, this principle of nonlinear causality, you can actually follow the principles of this nonlinear pattern and then get you out. This is why you have to do something. I once got into an argument with a particular Dharma teacher, I don't want to name names, but he said there are basically two ways of looking at the problem of awakening. One is something awakening is already there and you don't have to do anything. In fact, you shouldn't do anything. Just kind of relax into the awakening and boom, there you are. The other view is that awakening is something that you have to create through your own actions and therefore you have to put a lot of effort into the practice. And he said, okay, the, the Buddhist tradition, the different Buddhist traditions basically come up with these two alternatives. And I said, no, there's a third alternative. The third alternative is, okay, is that the unconditioned is already there, but you've got to work to get there. You know? And the analogy that John Lee gives is of salt water. You take a glass of salt water, okay, there is fresh water in the salt water. Now, if you stuck the glass of water there on the table and let it sit, would the salt ever settle out? No. You've got to do something to the water to get the fresh water out, to get, the, get rid of the salt water. In the same way, this is why meditation is a doing. You've got to do something, even though the unconditioned is always there, just you know, so sitting and waiting for you when you finally realize this. But you've got to work through a lot of your misunderstandings, a lot of your unskillful intentions, before you find it. So this is, why, this is the analogy of why meditation is a doing. It's not the case that you hear in some places that non-reactivity burns up old karma. Because non-reactivity, it turns out, is in itself an action. It's an intention. So you're continuing to create new intentions. They're more skillful than reactivity. But you actually have to abandon even your equanimity, even your non-reactivity, if you're going to get to something that's really outside the system of suffering. So you have this meditation is something you do. Because it's something you do, then the question is, how does a doctrine of karma relate to how you do it? Okay. Okay, first, it helps you to understand meditation as a process of developing skill to develop the mindfulness, concentration, and all the good factors that you need to develop in the mind. Secondly, you, you understand, okay, because of this distinction between past karma and present karma, tells you where to focus in the present moment. It's okay, you're sitting there and you're miserable. Pain of eating up your legs. You've got another whole 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and all you can think about is that 45 minutes. Okay. Okay, that in itself is part of the problem. In other words, if you just focus on how much things are hurting in the present moment, the Buddha says you're looking at the wrong spot. Where you should look at, what are your intentions right now? How are you framing the issue to yourself? What are your perceptions? How are you focusing on things? Maybe if you change that, it will give you some way of dealing with a problem, a pain. 
instead of just being a passive victim of the pain, you can do something about it. One of the most important lessons my teacher said he learned as a meditator came as a result of a really bad headache disease that he had. It seemed that for months and months and months he had this headache and nothing he could do, no medicine, no way of meditating that he seemed to could make the headache go away. And finally one night he realized the whole problem that he was sitting there wanting the headache to go away. He said, that's not what the Buddha said to do with suffering. What you do with suffering is you try to comprehend it. Okay, reframe the issue, reframe your intention. Now I want to understand this pain. He says, as he's simply trying to understand the pain, the pain finally went away. <laughs> but it took us several, several layers of understanding what was going on, what he was doing to contribute to the pain before it could stop. In other words, you can't, it's like you have a problem child. You just can't push the child out of your life. You've got to understand the kid. Okay, why is the kid reacting this way? What have I been doing to cause the problem? Maybe we can change things through understanding rather than simply wishing the problem away. This is the same lesson you've got to learn in your meditation. When you've come up against a brick wall, nothing seems to be working. Step back a little bit. So, okay, what are my intentions right now? What are my perceptions? Mainly, maybe the pain has to stay there as a result of past actions, but I can change my attitude. And by changing my attitude, that'll change my experience. The Buddha himself says in in one of his suttas, that if you develop an attitude of unlimited goodwill, then whatever pains come up in your body are going to be a lot less than if you just sit there, you know, obsessing on how much this meditation hurts or how much pain I'm in. He said it's the analogy is the difference between taking a crystal of salt and putting it in a glass of water. You can't drink the water. But if you put it in a, you know, back in the days when rivers were clean, if you put it in a, in a river, you can still drink the water in the river because there's so little salt in comparison to the river. Because you've developed this attitude of unlimited goodwill. By changing the way you perceive the situation, by also for changing the way you change your intention, you can actually change your experience of pleasure or pain. So this gives you the proper place to focus on in the present moment when there's pain. Even when you're not meditating, there's pain. This is how you deal with it. So you focus on your intention. You focus on the way you attend to the problem. So it means your potential for freedom lies right there. Rather than complaining or all the other things we tend to do around pain. So it gives you, the teaching on karma gives you the proper focus. Where are you going to focus in your meditation? You focus on your attention, you, the way you attend to things, the way you frame the issue. You see this very clearly when you're dealing with the breath. If you think of the breath as something you've got to fight to bring in every time, there's going to be a lot of tension and a lot of struggling just with the breathing. But if you perceive it as something that's always there, it just can come in any part of the body at any time, that simple way of changing your perception is going to change the pain your experience of pain. I had malaria the last year I was in Thailand. It was kind of my going away present. All those years I had managed to avoid it. And they said, hey, we're not going to let you get away. And it was, it was a lethal kind of malaria. They have two kinds. One that just you know, makes you sick and, as they say in Thailand, goes to your stomach. In other words, it gives you gastritis. And it doesn't kill you, but it just keeps coming back. And then there's a second kind, which is to say, go to your brain. It goes to your brain, and that can kill you. I had both. 
And so I had to go to the hospital. And one of the problems with malaria is that you've got all these little malaria parasites eating up your red blood cells. I.e., you get starved for oxygen and you get starved for all the other things that your red blood cells are providing. Which meant that the muscles that I normally use to breathe started getting really overworked. And just to breathe was painful. It was a real ordeal. And in the middle of one night, I realized, wait a minute, there are other ways to breathe. If you ever read a John Lee, he talks about all the other spots in your body where the breath can come in. So I just visualized to myself, okay, body, open up. Everywhere in the body just opens up. The breath can come in from any spot. And immediately the pain of that struggling breathing just went away. Other muscles got in to help. And that sort of got me through that period of just painful breathing. And you'll find the same principle. Can't get rid of the can't get rid of the helicopter, but you can <laughs> you can just block it out, you know. But if you're sitting there breathing and it's painful, change the way you frame the issue in your mind, and it's going to change your experience of pleasure and pain. The the principle of resonance reminds you that you can use thoughts to get out of these negative thought worlds you find yourself stuck in. You remind yourself, hey, wait a minute, I don't need to be here. Why am I doing this? It's causing unnecessary pain. I can just change my thoughts. And by simply raising those questions, what's my intention here? Why am I doing this? What's happening? By simply raising a question, you can pull yourself out. When you... And this happens, as I said earlier, this happens on larger sort of frames of mind, like when you get stuck in a really neurotic feedback loop in your mind. You hear about people getting these really bad, 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 bad states in mind that just feed on themselves all the time. And then all of a sudden, one day, there's this one thought that gets them out. It's called a neurotic breakthrough. Now, it's not re- it really, I mean, it's, it's, it's breaking out of neurotic problems. It's, it's not, they call it sometimes awakening. It's not the Buddha's awakening, but it's on the same pattern. And you can use this, you know, to help you in your meditation get out of really negative thought, thought worlds. And then finally, the teaching on karma gives you the proper attitude to ups and downs and mistakes in the meditation. In other words, if you feed neurotically over your past mistakes in your meditation, it's not going to help. And um, just going to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and say, let's go. And we find the mind keeps wandering off. You don't let yourself get discouraged. That's the other thing. When things are going really well in the meditation, the principle of karma, because it is a nonlinear system, and you look at nonlinear systems, it's like the weather. They can change very radically. So just because things are sailing along smooth means you can't get complacent because things might crash. So you've got to have the right attitude to when things are well. When things are going poorly, again, things can take an upturn. Remind yourself, things could take an upturn at any time. So don't get really discouraged about the fact that your meditation tends to look like this rather than a smooth you know, rise up to the you know, up and out of gravity. Make it, you know, make it a common assumption that okay, there are going to be ups, there are going to be downs. Don't let yourself get discouraged by the downs. Don't get complacent about the ups. Because this is the way karma works in the mind. <coughs> Finally, when the teaching on karma tells you how to develop wisdom in the meditation. And we hear about emptiness, we hear about not-self, and all these other things that are supposedly the things that we're going to, uh, going, to dis- going to learn about in the course of the meditation. What does that mean? 
It means that you learn to look at things in terms of actions and results. When you're meditating, you hit certain, you may hit certain states of concentration. And the Buddha says, look at it in terms of it, whether the state of concentration is has disturbance or is empty of disturbance. Okay, where is the emptiness? Where is the presence of disturbance? And look at the presence of disturbance and you'll find it's based around an intentional act related to a perception. In other words, you keep reminding yourself, you hit these great states and some of them are really you know, infinite space, infinite consciousness. You say, okay, I went two of those. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really good. And it really is really good when you get there. The problem is we tend, there is a strong tendency in the meditator's mind to assume that when you get there, it seems so real and so basic and so metaphysical that, my gosh, I've hit the ground of being. Things arise, things pass away, and they don't seem to touch this state. You have to remind yourself that state is the result of an action. There's an element of intention, there's an element of perception there. You've got to watch for that. You can't assume, okay, here it is, ground of being. Here I am. You have to look, okay, is there still a disturbance there? So the teaching on karma reminds you to look at these states of concentration not as kind of an tuning in to some metaphysical absolute, but okay, there's, there's an action, there's a perception, there's an intention here. You've got to look for it so you don't get stuck. It teaches you to look at your views on self as a fabrication. This is another one of the Buddha's really radical teachings. Is that he doesn't say whether there is a self or there is no self. He says, you create your sense of self as a strategy for happiness. It's an action. It's a pattern of actions. If you look at it in those terms, you begin to see, okay, where is this sense of self skillful? Where is it not skillful? The Buddha doesn't say to drop all concepts of self. He says there are certain times, like when the question is, okay, is it my turn to ring the bell? Or is it her turn to ring the bell? You have a strong sense of self. That gets the bell rung. You know? <laughs> When you need to be responsible, when you need to have a clear sense of you versus who else is responsible, it's good to have a good, healthy sense of self. When you're thinking about deferred gratification, then do I want to meditate now or do I want to go straight for the smoothie? You say, I'll meditate first, then I'll have the smoothie. <laughs> that requires a healthy sense of self. And again, those are, there are times when a sense of self is a useful activity, it's a useful strategy. It can get you to be generous, it can get you to be virtuous it can get you to practice meditation. The Buddha also discusses how our pursuit for happiness can lead to qualities that we really admire, qualities like purity, qualities like compassion, qualities like wisdom. You reflect on the fact that you want happiness, other people want happiness. If your happiness is based on their pain, they're going to work against your happiness. You've got to take their happiness into consideration. And this is the basis for compassion you begin to realize, okay, we're in this together. If, you, if true happiness is going to work. So the fact that you want happiness, that you want to strategize for happiness, can actually lead to good mental qualities. But there comes a point when you get into the meditation that if you start identifying, say, with your states of concentration, or you identify with your insights, you're blocking further progress. That's when the Buddha really, the teaching on not-self really kicks in. Okay, look at your states of concentration as activities. Even when you gain insight, remember that those acts of insight are activities that those two have to be let go. You can't identify with them. And it's in the letting go there that you attain 
you know, to get out, basically, of this pattern of suffering. So to summarize, okay, the Buddhist teachings on karma are not deterministic. They are not irrelevant to the practice. And they're not irrelevant to your life. And they're also not the sort of thing that you just want to push away that you would not like to have coming into your life. And they're there to help you have a healthy attitude towards your actions on a day-to-day level. Because they emphasize the power of your, the power of your intentions. Also, they emphasize on the fact that intentions do have a pattern. So you can learn from them. And it's what meditation is about, is basically learning from your actions. And so this is why the teachings on karma are very relevant to not only how we meditate, but also not only why we meditate, but also how you do the meditation. And how you ultimately lead, gain states of concentration, and then also seeing everything in terms of action and results, how you finally develop wisdom, the wisdom and insight that leads to true freedom from suffering. Those are the points I wanted to make tonight. Do you have any questions? Yes. I uh, wanted to ask you if you would please explain. You said uh, you need to ultimately lay aside your equanimity mm-hmm. in the process of being non-reactive and containing, being totally unconditioned or mm-hmm. um, that sort of state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Non-reactivity or equanimity is an intention. And and many times it's a skillful intention, but not always. There are times when you actually have to be proactive. And it's learning to see that there is an intentional element there. That's when you really understand what intention is all about. If you don't see that as intentional, you miss an important point. It's like those resonances I was talking about. You've got yourself in a position where you tend to be, can be more skillful, but you're still in the system. You don't get out. When you can see even non-reactivity as an intentional action, you drop that, and then you get out. You went straight to the heart. (laughs) Any other questions? No, it's not distracting. It's just asking yourself, why am I doing this? To realize that that thought world is a construct. And you're just going from one sort of loop back to the loop. Asking, where can I break this loop? And one way of breaking it is when realizing, hey, wait a minute, I'm making this. I don't have to. This is one of the big paradoxes of human life, is that we all want happiness, but we all do things to cause suffering. Mainly because we forget what we're doing. It's like being in a bad dream and suddenly remember, oh, I'm dreaming. I don't have to dream this. You see that you, when you begin to see your intentional input in there, that you don't have to follow that. Now, part of this requires that you also are able to imagine an alternative. This is one of the big issues in addiction. People get into a sort of cycle and they say, I'm getting this situation. The only way I can react to this is to do X. 
and they can't even imagine themselves doing why. And so the first thing you've got to do is this is this is basically training your perceptions, training your attention, as they call it, it's the way you frame things. So, okay, there's this alternative. And you can actually imagine yourself doing the alternative, and you find yourself doing it. So it's not just a matter of just stopping the addictive behavior. You have to figure out an alternative. And it's not so much a distraction, it's just realizing that that thought construct is a construct and you have to keep on doing it. So you can ask yourself, why am I doing this? This is an intention. Why am I doing this? And it turns out the Buddha's teachings on, the, on insight as a whole are basically the same questions. One, see this as an activity. The question is, okay, what's, what's the, the gratification I'm getting out of this? And then you also look at the drawbacks. And then you begin to compare the two. You realize, okay, the, the drawbacks are a lot more than the gratification. And then you learn to imagine, okay, there, there must be an alternative. And when you can see that you're actually doing this, you realize, oh, I have the choice of not doing it, then you're out. I mean, this is why there's so many books on the power of now. They get, people get themselves so wound up in this thought world and say, wait a minute, I can just be in the now. Bang, it goes. That's, that's what's called a neurotic breakthrough. And then you can sell books for the rest of your life. You know? <laughs> yes. Well, I usually think of suffering is about emotional suffering. And, um, but really fascinating when you're talking about non-linear residences, um, because I know that friends of mine have gotten sick. You know, they often say, "Well, why me? Why did I get cancer?" And I was, and it's, it's often you just seem like the two options are either like I've done something wrong and that's I'm being punished with this disease, <coughs> or the world's completely random. Do you know anybody who's been born and doesn't die? And have you ever seen anybody who's born and doesn't die? It's, no. <laughs> the ones who are alive right now are hoping, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you'd say it's inevitable. It's built into these complex systems. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there are two ways you can think about it. One is they have the, you know, you've heard of the chakras, and there's actually an energy exchange going at these parts. And so just think, oh, it's not that I have to breathe through the nose all the time. I can think of energy coming in here, at the top of the head, back of the neck, um, chest, stomach. And, think, and that would really change the mechanics of just visualizing it that way changes the mechanics of how you go about breathing. The other alternative is think, I've got, there's oxygen being exchanged in all my pores. If I can think of just relaxing all my pores so they open up, more oxygen comes in that way. And think of it, you're just, a, you're just a sponge. And the breath comes in, the breath goes out, all over. It's a lot easier. And if you don't believe it, you saw Goldfinger, right? Sure. Yeah. You know why she died, right? Yeah. Actually, it's the whole body. They, <coughs> out in Laguna Beach, they have these what they call the pageant of the masters. Um, it's they, they recreate old works of art. 
And it's basically an excuse for getting all the people with good bodies up on the stage naked, you know, and, and say this is art. <laughs> but for the statues, they cover everybody with this paste. And they learn pretty quickly that if you didn't leave part of the body open, it doesn't have to be the base of the, sp- the, base of the, the spine, but it can be any part in the body. You have to have some spot. Um, if they totally cover the people, they would faint on stage. And you can see David or Venus fainting on stage. It's not, it's not, it's not inspiring. <laughs> but the message is, okay, you're getting a lot of oxygen in your skin, so just maximize that. Make your mind really still so your brain is l- using less oxygen. And you can get through a lot of really bad, you know, difficult breathing periods. found that it tends to prolong it and it reifies it. Because um, most of us, we have the feeling that with anger, you've got two possibilities. Either you express it or you suppress it, bottle it up. And there are other ways of dealing with it. When you deal with the breath, one of the, one of the skills that you learn with breathing meditation is that um, you find patterns of tension in the body, you can relax them just by the way you breathe. You can actually, especially if there's tension in the chest, which is where it tends to center right here with anger. Think of it going into your hands. And you're breathing in and just allowing the tension to flow out that way. So you've got an alternative. And I found that the best thing to deal with anger is to tell a kid, okay, okay, breathe really deep and relax totally, and then look at what you're angry about without having the feeling it's all bottled up and I've got to get it out. And this, and then think, okay, what needs to be done right now that would be skillful? And this is why you know, there are several steps, and it's not, it takes a certain amount of maturity to get there. Okay, what really should be said right now to take care of the situation? Or what should be done to take care of the situation, rather than just reacting in anger? Because many times when we react in anger, we do and say things that we're later going to regret. So you say, okay, what could, what could be, if something is happening that's wrong, what can be effectively done to stop it? And that's going to require a calm mind. Like my teacher, my, my teacher, my grandfather, was a boxer, in addition to being a farmer. <laughs> and um, my mother, however, was an author. 
and she liked to give strange names to her kids. I got the most normal name in the family. Jeffrey spelled with a G. My older brother's name is Galen. My younger brother's name is Giles. And you know, my grandfather, remembered my grandfather taking my older brother aside. I didn't see this, but my brother told me about it. Before he went to first grade, he said, look, Galen, you're going to get a lot of problems about your name. And you've got to learn how to fight back. <laughs> and so he sort of showed him a few boxing moves and then started slapping him. Then he started slapping, getting harder and harder until Galen lost his temper and just started flailing. And as soon as he started flailing, then my grandfather really got him. He said, look, you can't do that. He said, when you see something happen, you've got to go cold. If somebody's going to fight you, you've got to go cold. Don't get angry. Just do what you need to do to knock them out. So that's the first thing you tell the kids. <laughs> so you tell the kids, if you really want to knock the guy out, you can't be angry. And then uh, hopefully as the kid grows older, they'll figure out other alternatives to knocking the guy out. But you've got to help them see the advantage of just being really calm to sort of gauge the situation and do what needs to be done. And that way they don't get into the idea that this anger has come up and it's got a life of its own. You've got to live with it until its life is gone. You can sort of cut it through sort of breathing through it, calming down, and it's okay, now what needs to be done? You might want to try that. Yes? I also work with kids. And actually, one of them, I work with foster kids. told me that she was sexually abused. And uh, um, she was asking for advice. They asked her to do the therapy. And she said, yeah, we're going to work. Mm-hmm. And so I have a meditation practice, but I didn't feel comfortable talking to her about that. And at the moment, I didn't really know what to say, except to say, well, um, Well, well, one of the first, most visible ways of showing goodwill for yourself is allowing yourself to breathe comfortably in the situation. And once you've got that, then you can build on that. So I'd say, okay, you know, goodwill and breathing together to give a sort of a foundation in the present moment for dealing with, okay, what, now that you've got these other emotions, let's take them apart one by one by one. Just, just goodwill on its own is not enough. You have to make it immediate and visceral. So that you can actually feel, okay, it feels better to feel good about myself. And there are techniques you have for reinforcing that. Once you give kids techniques, they, they feel a lot more in control of the situation. I had a student who was a mother of an autistic and hyperactive child, which is a bad combination. And as he was getting older, he became a teenager, he had a lot of problem with anger and lust. <coughs> And so she would bring him up to see me. And as she was, you know, she said, you know, you've got to not be angry. I said, look, you can't say that. Okay. You say, okay, if you're angry, do this. And so I just gave him a list of things. And he was functionally, you know, functional autistic, so he could actually remember a few things. And I found out later that it worked. When you're angry, stop, breathe deep, relax, and then look at what needs to be done. So, you know, give a series of techniques. And don't be, you don't have to call it, you know, meditation. Say, this is just, you know, healthy practices. And then 
once they have that sense of found, a sense of more control over their emotions and over their bodies, then you're putting them in a position of power. Buddha doesn't have a teaching on ground of being. It's just the unconditioned, which is totally unrelated to other things, so it's not the ground of any being. Mm-hmm. The unconditioned has no intentions. It's not intention. It's not created by intention. It's not related to intentions. But by understanding your intentions and taking them apart, that's how you get there. I guess the thing that really upsets me about karma is when it's a huge tragedy, natural disasters, it seems to pull me away and when I try to figure out the mind starts going, why did this happen, why did my spark this happen? You alluded to this earlier about the thing and all Somehow, if, if, if I get too involved thinking about karma, the massive suffering of things that there's some thing that someone has done or massive Well, one, as I said, the Buddha says, if you go there, you go crazy. Two, doesn't matter if they did something in a past life that's causing it now. Does that mean you have any less compassion for them? Sometimes, for some people, it does. I mean, uh, for example, in Iraq, I was watching and I hear all the time that these people are very tribal and I'm ready for democracy, you know, the location of their own sovereignty. So sometimes people rationalize things through karma but actually what it does is present you a situation where you can say okay are the, are the causes of their suffering are they past karma or are they present karma like if people have a certain mindset that doesn't allow them to get out okay, that's present karma that's where you focus your energies if it's just past karma you say everybody has past karma let's all pitch in and help because as the Buddha said, you see somebody suffering, you know that you've been there sometime in the past, and you could easily be there again. So what kind of help would you like to you know, receive if that happened? If you're in a position to help, you help. So in other words, he's teaching you not to be complacent about your being in a better position than somebody else, because maybe they're... It's just that their karma is showing up before yours does. However, if it's something that they're, they're continuing to do right now, Okay, then you focus your efforts. Okay, what we can get to ch- help them change their attitude, change their point of view, so we can stop this. Is it possible? And there are some cases where they say, no, don't, you know, don't touch us, leave us alone. That's where you have to develop equanimity.
Yeah, well, the, the disaster itself is not caused by their actions, but the fact that they happen to be there was caused by their actions. But as I said, it doesn't really mean that we should be any less compassionate to the victims. Because the Buddha doesn't talk about people deserving to suffer. That word never appears. Remember that certain actions lead to certain kinds of results. And you even have cases where you know, Mogalana killed his parents in a previous lifetime. And he's reaping the results of that. But that doesn't mean that we should have any less compassion. But in the meantime, the fact that he had trained his mind means that he doesn't suffer from whatever the consequences are. So that the issue of, you know, the fact that these people suffered may, you know, way, may way, way past to the point where you don't even think, well, it's, it seems like a, an awfully long collecting of debts here. Um, but it may be just, you know, it, because the complex pattern of you know, causality is so complex, it may just take a while. But again, it doesn't mean that you should have any less compassion. It's important thing. Yeah. In some ways, kind of even increased compassion, because it seems like part of this discussion is about thinking of that conversation of the Christian sense of, oh, they did bad things, so now there's there's balance, as opposed to the sense of they did something out of ignorance, mm-hmm. or they still have, yeah, like, that we all have different areas of ignorance, and thus we are suffering because of that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's it's a question of you know, guilt versus ignorance. As, and then the Buddha goes on the side of ignorance. Pardon? How do you develop Well, part of it is one realizing that this is going to take some time and that it's worth putting some time into it. And then secondly, by developing attitudes of goodwill, by developing you know, a sense of ease in your body and a sense of ease with your mind, that gives you the strength to sort of bear, you know, to stick with it. Because there's so much of the teaching that you know, we think the Buddha is always talking about suffering, but he's also talking about ways that you can give rise to a sense of ease and a sense of well-being through the practice. It's the path. I mean, the path is basically centers around a sense of well-being, which is the strength that enables you to keep going. One is having a strong conviction that, yes, this is worth doing. And that enables you to stick with it. And then this develops more mindfulness, more concentration, more discernment. And all of these are strengths for the mind. They give, give power to your path, or sort of endurance to your path, patience. Yeah. Good to have a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who's been down the path before and they can tell you, okay, that's that's diluted, okay? You can stay here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Either way, her par- her family didn't understand the teaching on karma. Yeah. 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 I mean, it didn't seem that way to me, but I guess I'm curious about that, about what you would call the misunderstanding of karma. And also, you know, going along with that, the idea that you can make merit by setting a bird free from a cage mm-hmm. by paying someone at the temple. <laughs> you know, like, it might not be the way the Buddha intended mm-hmm. karma to be thought about or practiced, but how do you deal with these practices that have arisen around karma that Okay, um, it's the problem there is what's called the ritualization of karma. And this is what goes back to an, actually it's an attitude that the Buddha himself attacked, that simply by doing certain actions in a prescribed way, you sort of pay off, you know, you get karma points. And I mean, this is, this is basically what the Vedas were all about. You do the ritual the proper way and you get the, you get the results. And there's something about human nature that likes that. Because you know, the Buddha is asking you to change your intentions. Intentions are slippery. But you know, if a bird is in a cage and then it's out of the cage, you know, you know it's clear. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you know they're going to catch the bird again, put it back in the cage and sell it to the next person. You know. um, my dealings in Thailand, I would try to discourage people from those attitudes as much as possible. And say, okay, that's a basic misunderstanding of karma. You've got to look at your intentions. And I saw my teacher having to deal with this all the time. But then, so that's, it was part of the job of being a meditation teacher was to clear up you know, strange views about karma. On the other hand, the idea of the Buddha's ideas on what actually are things that are meritorious, I mean, being generous is a good thing. You know, having principles in your action is a good thing. Developing thoughts of goodwill, these are good things. And you want to encourage people to develop these things as a way of you know, getting, them, getting them out of bad habits. So in that, in that sense, that the idea of you know, the pursuit of merit, if it's done properly, is actually you know, it's helpful for the world. Remember that I think the Lord is more punished for, or leaving the results out. 
again, when, that's one of those areas where you can't prove it one way or another until you've had an experience of awakening. And so you can, use, you can take it as a working hypothesis. Um, I find it a better working hypothesis for the sake of the path than the idea that we're annihilated at death or that we came out of nothing. But if you find that it bothers you, just put it aside and focus on the present moment. And that's, that's the option you have. And maybe as you practice it, you may find it makes more sense. But try to keep an open mind and say you're not asking to commit to that part of the, the teaching. And you commit to the, prop, the, the aspects of the practice that really are helpful in your meditation and help you deal with things. And there may come a point down the line when the teaching on past lives is helpful. If you don't find it helpful yet, just put a question mark next to it and say, okay, I don't know this one yet. Because nobody's forcing you. <laughs> There's no creed that says, okay, raise your hands and say this. It's, it's, okay, take the parts of the teaching that are helpful to you and work with those. What I'm trying to do here is point out that the, the, the general principle of causality and the principle of action is very useful for the principle for the practice of meditation. You can totally do the meditation without having made a, taken a stance on past lives. So nobody's forcing it. I personally find it makes a lot of sense. But, I, but the, point, the point that's really important is that how the teaching, what it really means in terms of causality, what it means and where you focus your attention. That's the important point. got their DNA. Yes. Yeah. And, and they are kind of experiences that Well, what, what you get passed on to you from your parents, aside from your DNA, if you're raised by them, you get certain patterns of thought. And they say one of the reasons why they are your parents, if you're looking for an explanation in terms of past lives, is that you did the same kinds of things that they did, or together with them, and that's why you have certain attitudes in common or why you were attracted to them. Like also, uh, like past experiences, like traumatic experiences, which they kept in their life somehow, and they kind of passed them on to... That's, you don't have to think about past lives for that one. It's just, you, you know, you pick them up directly from their experience, right. their ways of thinking. But it's in a way also something which is that works in past lives of other people. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, but again, the, the, the cure is not to trace it back but to look at how it's functioning in the present moment. And that's what the, that's what the teaching is. It's a cure. Rather than trying to explain everything there is out there, so how can we cure, cure the problem of suffering? And focus right here. seems to me that it works kind of another way that you know, bad things happen due to 
Well, something, again, we're talking about things that happen as opposed to things that you actually do. Like the case of the drunk who, you know, who's, who's drunk, he got himself drunk. You don't have to trace that back to a previous lifetime. It's right now. He did that right now. And then he makes some stupid choices. You don't have to trace that back. And again... <laughs> you hang around vice presidents, you know, you're asking for it. <laughs> this is this this is why you can't get complacent about good karma either. You think, hey, I've got you know, I've got connections, right? <laughs> you can't be complacent about your connections, you know. <laughs> It is a complex system, and therefore it should happen. <laughs> Good things happen too. Okay, but well, the important element of the teaching is that okay, it's what you're doing right now. Your intentional input into the system can be changed. The stuff that comes from the past. This is it. If you know, so she did some, do something really bad in a past life, that doesn't mean we should have should you know have less compassion for her now. I think that's what gets to people most is that somehow you know, she deserved it. And so the Buddha never talks about deserving things; that there's a pattern of actions. Um, for the purpose of putting an end to suffering, you have to see, okay, what am I doing now that's contributing to suffering? Can I stop that? And as you pursue that question further and further and further, you begin to realize exactly how much of your present experience is a result of present intentions. Certain things you can't change, but the element of present intention, that's where the issue lies. And when the Buddha was teaching on karma, there are these other implications, but he said, focus in here. And, and that, that's what solves the problem. That's what his teaching is all about. Yes? Something good will tend to happen out of it. More so than something you do something bad. Because I, I think that, it's, that something bad can be neutralized by something good. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. But I mean, something good, I think, has, has a follow-up. Mm-hmm. It just, just seems from experience. 
And I've seen it, you've seen it happen. It's just surprising how it, it has a connection to the, the, to the future. It has a connection to the immediate moment. But it also very often surprisingly has that connectivity. <coughs> Whereas something bad sometimes that happens could easily be neutralized in the future by something good. Well, that's, that's the principle that we're working on. Right? But the reason you can't be complacent is that it works the other way, too. Here's one more. Great summary. <laughs> and it is nine o'clock. So, perfect timing. Okay, so for those of you who are coming tomorrow morning, I look forward to seeing you again. And for those of you who are not, I hope you. This was a difficult talk to give because I know that some of you are coming back and some of you are not. And then there are going to be people showing up tomorrow morning who haven't been here. <laughs> but I hope that those of you who aren't coming back did get something out of the talk. Look forward to seeing you the rest of you tomorrow at 10. Is that it? Okay. Thank you. And help yourself to the books at the back of the room. I want to thank Tanasawa Biku and thank all of you for coming tonight and all the volunteers who helped make this possible. Please take a moment and consider Donna. Um, you know, give yourself a little time. And thank you for coming. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.